We read from the Word of God, Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, starting at the 21st verse. Hear now the inerrant, the infallible, the holy word of our holy God. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us richly this afternoon. Just briefly as we meditate together on the words that have been set before us, I want to raise two questions. Perhaps they're strange questions in a time like this. But I want to ask, first of all, why are we here? I don't mean, why are we at a wedding? Uh, I mean more, why are we here in the context of worship? Why is it that a wedding is taking place with preaching, praise, and prayer? Is this merely a cultural convention? Is this simply custom? I suppose a second question that's related to that is, as you look at your own assessment of the situation, what is the significance of this moment to you? Is it just that you love love? Is it just that you love Theo and Ione? Why is this moment so significant and taking place in the context that it is? You see, I think the answer to that second question at least how we should see the significance of a moment such as this, is given to us in our text. It's given to us in Ephesians chapter 5 in, in clear colors. It's given to us so that there should be no confusion, but it's given to us in such a profound way that, friend, I think we've lost it. Generally speaking, the significance that the apostle would have us see in a wedding, and more broadly speaking in a marriage, is certainly lost on our generation. And so I want us briefly to look at the words that I've just read to you, those words from Ephesians 5, and with a view to God's blessing, 
pleading that he would show us from his own word the truths that are contained here, that we might leave knowing how we should find this moment significant. You see, the apostle in verses 21 and 33 make reverence or fear really a central theme in these verses. But this this discussion about what true reverence and true fear should look like takes place in a broader discussion that really begins at the very end of chapter 4. And and the apostle there from chapter 4 right through to the end of the epistle is dealing with a very small subject. It's just all of life that the apostle is handling here. Every single sphere of life the apostle deals with. And he deals with it in such a way as to show that the gospel... The gospel that he preaches, the gospel that the church in Ephesus had professed, is a gospel that really penetrates all of life. That's the point of the end of this epistle. To demonstrate, so that there is no confusion, that the gospel has penetrated every single aspect of the believer's existence. And so naturally he comes to marriage. He comes to those verses that we've just read this afternoon. The Ephesians have a new life in Christ. And that means that they need to act and they need to think about marriage accordingly. Christ has genuinely changed everything. All things have become new. As the Apostle will demonstrate, he is making all things new as well, including this institution. And so, friend, as you look at those verses, you'll notice that the Apostle deals with the wife and with the husband Verses 22 to 24, he, he deals with the wife specifically. In verses 25 to the end, he turns to the husband. All to make this simple point. The gospel really has changed marriage. And for believers, this is to be the most profound aspect of their lives together in matrimony. So you look at this text, you'll notice that the apostle does this in such a way that you're almost left with a question. If you remember back to how I read this, the apostle joins the the marriage of a husband and wife together to create an analogy between that relationship between Christ and the church. And so as you read through those verses, you sometimes wonder, is, is the apostle teaching us something about marriage, or is he teaching us something about the relationship between Christ and his people? And Well, friend, I'd say to you that the answer is both. Yes. Uh, Here the Apostle is instructing us one analogy leading to a deeper truth that we might see the significance of marriage aright. And beloved, just briefly our theme then this, this afternoon is just that marriages are to reflect gospel realities. Marriages are to reflect gospel realities. I'd submit to you, friend, as we're gathered here today, as we came here so eagerly anticipating this moment, this, the Apostle would tell us, is the most significant aspect of a moment such as this. Here you and I are supposed to see that it is a presentation of the Gospel that you and I should see here and should be so so thrilled to have before us this afternoon. I want us to look at this, first of all, as the sign that the Apostle takes up. And then I want us to look at the object that he says it points to. The sign is given to us in verse 31 where the apostle says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the apostle is quoting from Genesis 2. 
There, the, the apostle is drawing us, drawing our attention, training our minds back to the Garden of Eden, and he's saying, this is the sign. This is the thing that I would have you fixed upon. As you think about Christ and the church, I'll take you back to Eden. He takes us back to creation. And, and you remember, friend, when those words are spoken. You remember that in Genesis, there's something of, of a crescendo that's building. You remember that in the Garden of Eden, well, first of all, Adam wasn't there. Adam was created outside of the Garden. And then, God brought him into the Garden. Then, after he was in the Garden, God brought all of the lesser creatures in front of him to demonstrate Adam's sovereignty, and also to demonstrate that he had no equal among the creatures. And what were all of those steps supposed to do? Why didn't God just simply create Adam in the garden? Why did, why did he not just immediately bring all the lesser creatures into view? The answer is so clear in chapter 2. Adam is being led, as it were, by the hand to know that all goodness, all true goodness, comes only from God. Adam, in the moment of his creation, is trained, as it were, by steps to see that if he's to expect anything good, it can only come from the hand of God. But what is the pinnacle? Of all of those earthly, those temporal blessings that Adam knows in that text, what is the pinnacle? Well, the pinnacle, of course, is Eve. The pinnacle is there, his helpmeet, and marriage. It's that moment that the apostle takes us back to. He takes us to that moment in creation where Adam beheld not only the most beautiful creature, but was brought into the most beautiful institution that Adam would know. I want you to notice, friend, that that is a right and a biblical view of marriage. A beautiful institution. And in fact, of all the temporal blessings that can be known, this is the greatest. It was for Adam in the garden. It is still even after the fall. Because in this marriage, you recognize that there is, as the apostle tells us here, a mutual giving one of another. They become one flesh. And the scriptures that's held out to us on the wife's side is this, that, that she will forget her people and her father's house, Psalm 45. Of all of those human relationships that she will know, she, she cleaves, she leaves them all and she cleaves to her husband, but it's not just that, it's not just one-sided. The husband does the same. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. That most precious relation, that one that he's born into, he's willing to leave it aside because he sees in this institution something more beautiful and by God's design most helpful to him. Most, most conducive to the good of himself and his wife. And so that's what the apostle takes us back to. He calls wives to submit, not unconditionally, not in an abusive way, but to submit unto the Lord. Because that is part of this mutual giving. And he calls the husband to love their wives as their own bodies, to nourish and cherish it. Because in this institution, man would find no greater earthly or temporal blessing in here. Friend, just briefly, and I don't have time to go into the details, but, but the picture that we get of marriage in the scriptures, really from the Garden of Eden, that very point that we're taken back to in our text, 
is that this is the apex of human intimacy. This beautiful, mutual giving of oneself to one another. This zenith of harmony. That, friend, is how you and I should view this institution. It is for you and for me to think about these things as really being the apex of all of those. But that's just the sign. That's just the sign. You remember what the apostle says. He says, I speak. After he quotes those words, he says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's a staggering move that the apostle takes. He takes this thing that that, that should for all of mankind be regarded as, as one of the most wonderful pictures of the benevolence, mercy, and wisdom of God. He takes this thing that is tangibly the apex of human, human affection. And as it were, he takes that sign that pointed to the benevolence of a creator, takes it as it were off of its post, and points it directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in that institution, in, in all of that harmony, in all of that affection, in all of those wonderful things, that marriage has there. I would train your attention to him. I would train, I would train your mind and your heart to reflect upon Christ and his love for his people. He takes a, he takes a sign that was there in the garden that again pointed to the benevolence of a creator and turns it to indicate the redeemer. You see, beloved, in this text, we're really shown the significance of all of these things in a powerful way. The point at the end of Ephesians 5 is the love of Christ. That's the point that he drives to time and again. He loved the church and so gave himself for her. Friend, as you look at this text, you and I are supposed to recognize that we have a heavenly bridegroom that we're supposed to be meditating on. One who loved his bride. But what was his bride? The second Adam had a very different bride than the first. Eve was beautiful. Eve was untouched, untainted by the fall. Eve was a woman that, of course, exhibited the image of God so clearly There was no malice in her heart. There was no envy. There was no hatred. When Adam beheld Eve, his wife, he saw in her the perfection with which she had been created. But what did Christ see when he saw his bride? He tells us in his own word, None I pitied thee to do any of these good things unto thee to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live, yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live. Beloved, When Christ looked at his people, he saw those who through sin were most odious, hideous, unlovely. But the apostle says he loved her and gave himself for her. 
Martin Luther put it this way. The picture that you and I have in Ephesians 5 is of a king riding along in his carriage, and, and he is riding along, and out of the corner of his eye he beholds a woman, as it were, on the side of the road, covered in the elements, wounded, putrefying sores, no good thing to her name. The king leaves his carriage, throws wide open the door, takes off his robes, and he lifts her out of the road, cleans her from all of those, all of those blemishes, clothes her with his own provision, and then, and then brings her into the carriage and makes her his wife. That is what Christ does for the sinner. That's what the apostle says you and I are to be thinking about when we come to think about marriage. The loving Christ stooping down and taking that which was unlovely. Taking those whose hearts were filled with malice, hatred against God, self-living, self-serving, self-reliant. Those who had no thought for God, that, that received all of these good things freely from his own hand, and yet had no thought for him. He's pleased to take them and to make them his bride. In other words, friend, what you have in Ephesians 5 is a picture of rescue, cleansing. But you can't miss this either, can you? Intimacy. Friend, in Ephesians 5, you and I have a picture of Christianity that's so very rarely known today. He invokes here not an analogy that is greater than its reality. He takes that sign that demonstrated the most intimate, that demonstrated the most powerful relationship men might know. And he says that is a pale and a creaturely picture of that intimacy, of that love and of that fellowship that is enjoyed between Christ and his people. Friend, do you know this? Do you know this truth yourself? Do you know what it is to walk so closely with the Lord that even marriage at its best is but a pale, a creaturely picture of that intimacy that you know with him? Well, friend, that's what the apostle tells us. We need to focus our attention upon in a moment such as this. Yes, we rejoice that the Lord God has given us this institution. The apostle says, if you've stopped here with Theo and with Ione, and you've not lifted your gaze higher, and you've not beheld Christ, your view is so dim, and your understanding is so truncated. As we close, Theo and Ione, you might have thought that I've forgotten about you. I haven't. This, of course, is a wonderful day. This is a day that we are delighted that we can witness ourselves. And we know it's a day that you've long been looking forward to. But I want you to think about this text today. I want you to remember how the apostle would drive your mind. Yes, of course, to reflect on the goodness of God that you now know in this moment. But to train your attention higher.
You see, in Ephesians 5, he gives you the mold. He gives you the rule that your lives are to be a pattern of. And the mold is always more perfect. The rule is always more perfect than the thing that's ruled. And so, to really appreciate this moment, while you relish in each other's affection, remember this too. At your best, at that highest moment where you find that your affection and your fellowship has reached its climax, its apex, Paul would say you still have not come to the foothills of the love that Christ bears toward you, his people. That, friend, that's the kind of thing that really should make this moment most sweet. I would say this to you also. I don't have as much gray hair, if you permit me to say this, as some others in the room. I won't pretend to be the wisest man here. But I do believe I've given you the key to a happy, to a fruitful marriage. To train your eyes upon Christ. You see, that that will be the kind of thing that will drive you to the humility and the mutual giving to one another that will last all your lives. If I might close with a word to the congregation. You and I were delighted to be here. We are. It's, this is one of those moments that we look forward to eagerly. But keeping in mind what we've just said from Ephesians 5, I want you to remember that you are going to be a witness to a moment like this, but far more glorious. You have it as a promise from on high that you will be witness to another wedding. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I've been speaking to you just very briefly from the word of God that in Christ there is more intimacy. In Christ there is more love. In Christ there is found rescue and nourishment. And one day that will be clearly displayed for all the world to see. When at last his people will demonstrate that what the apostle was referring to here was not some abstract ethereal notion. Every one of us in this room will see that moment. And friend, if you think that what I'm speaking about here this afternoon is really just just religious niceties, just pious reflections that don't really have meaning, I want you to remember, friend, that one day you'll see that Christ really does love the church as the apostle describes it. That the church really does walk intimately with Christ. That it's not ritualism, base ritualism. It's not this idea of simply thinking religious thoughts or calling oneself a Christian, but one can walk with the living Christ. And how many on that day will be disappointed to find that that was offered to them in a moment like this was just that. That in the preaching of God's word, Christ himself was making, as it were, his proposals. Friend, would you hear the proposal now? The proposal is, thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. 
You've embraced the world and the things of it. Surely, friend, you found that those things just go through your fingers. So here's Christ's proposal. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Christ's proposal is come unto me, and I will give you rest. And friend, find then just what the apostle has shown us. That the apex of human love and affection is genuinely only a pale and a creaturely picture of what is found in Christ. Amen. We respond to God's word by turning once again in our programs to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. And friend, we sing this psalm, of course, in praise to God. But we sing it also, of course, hopeful, waiting for the fulfillment of those promises that are yea and amen in Christ. I want you to see for a moment just the ninth verse. As he's rejoicing that God is judge over all, he says, this rejoicing is because he comes. To judge the earth comes he. He'll judge the world with righteousness, his folk with equity. The church rejoices because... Because her maker, her judge, and her husband is coming. Friend, do you rejoice in this, this blessed promise? And if you do, friend, train your mind even in a moment as this, to reflect and eagerly anticipate that moment. To God's praise, if you are able, please stand to sing Psalm 98, the entirety of the entirety of the psalm.
Let's remain standing to come back to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Father, we thank you for how it does drain our minds to think beyond ourselves. How it does show us, even in a moment such as this, that there is greater love to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ than men might know. Father, we pray that for Theo and for Ione, this, this truth will settle them and will stay them. Father, we thank you and we praise you that they already know in their own hearts the love of Christ, that indeed the day spring on, from on high has shone brightly, and that they know him as their maker and as their husband. We ask that this marriage would indeed more and more exhibit throughout the years the gospel, that as the onlooking world beholds them, they would see their picture, creaturely, yes, but a picture nonetheless of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would drive our minds as well, drive our minds to him, that we would make certain that we have answered his proposals, that we've come to him by faith alone, and that we've laid hold of the riches that he offers to us, forsaking all other lovers, that we might know him. Father, we ask that you be gracious to us in these ways, and bless us to these ends, we ask this day. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.